and just echo that thanks to everybody for being here, particularly those who have come specifically for this, who wouldn't normally be here on a Sunday morning. And, um, well, what a topic. What sort of a God would send good people to hell? That's, that's quite a topic. I, I wonder what you think of when you think of hell. What comes to your mind? It might, maybe it's something like this. If you just put that picture up. Maybe it's something like that. I wouldn't be surprised at all if that's what many people thought of as hell. And not only that, but with God standing at the top, throwing people in, casting people in, um, into this pit, this torture chamber, this dungeon. And as they're going down the sides of this chasm, they're pleading for mercy. We're really sorry. We're really sorry. Please let us out. Please let us out. And God's standing over the top of them saying, no, it's too late. You had your chance. Now you're going to suffer. I wouldn't be at all surprised if that was many people's thought when they thought of hell. Thank you, you can take that down. I think that is a gross misunderstanding and caricature of the biblical teaching about hell. And hopefully that will become clear as I go on. So my initial response to this question, what sort of a God would send good people to hell, would be not the God I believe in. Not the God I believe in. The sort of God who would send good people, i.e. undeserving people, to hell... That would be the brutal, mean, capricious, maniacal God that Stephen Fry has been talking about recently. And I'm sure most of you have either seen or heard about his um, very eloquent rant that he had about God very recently. But happily, you know, the God that Stephen Fry doesn't believe in is not the God I believe in either. And yet, yet, I do believe absolutely in the doctrine of hell, what the Bible teaches about hell. Believing in something doesn't make it comfortable, though. You know, hell isn't something that Christians particularly like thinking about either. Maybe because they've believed that caricature, or that's what they've been taught, that is what they think of hell. And if that's the case, well, rightly so, you'd be uncomfortable with that. Absolutely rightly so. And it leads to Christians sometimes trying to explain hell away, dismiss hell as being something that's not real, in an attempt to make God appear more loving. But, you know, even where there is a good understanding of the biblical teaching about hell, it's still uncomfortable because it's desperately sad. If we were comfortable with this stuff, there'd be something very, very wrong. And let me just say this, right from the start, God feels the same. Let me just make that absolutely clear. God is not comfortable with hell. The Bible is very clear. God takes no pleasure in people going to hell. It grieves him greatly. He is not comfortable with hell. The Bible is very clear that he desires that all would be saved, that all would be saved from hell. God is not comfortable with hell. First thing that I would question here, I would ask a question of the question, what sort of a God would send good people to hell? Well, I'd ask a question of that question, which is this, what constitutes a good person? I guess we would probably all agree that if hell exists, someone like Adolf Hitler, for example, well, he, you know, the evil he's perpetrated, he absolutely should go there. Or like these Islamic State people at the moment who are beheading children, according to reports. Pure evil. Pure, pure evil. Surely if hell exists, those are the sorts of people who should go there. But does anyone else qualify? Who else might qualify? Murderers? Murder's bad, isn't it? Because it's so destructive. Taking somebody's life? Rapists? Pedophiles? What about if you committed adultery? That's pretty destructive. Committing adultery, that that destroys many people's lives. 
What about burglary? If you, if you burgle somebody's house, that's, that's really awful. That's a really awful thing to do. It's really destructive. The point I'm trying to make is where is the line drawn between someone who is bad enough and therefore deserves to go to hell and someone who is good enough and therefore doesn't deserve to go to hell, and in fact deserves to go to heaven? And who decides where the line is? Who, who makes that call? Against whose standards do we make that call? Because I can make myself feel pretty... I can make myself feel pretty morally superior if I compare myself to someone I consider to be morally inferior. So, you know, you've murdered somebody, I haven't, therefore I'm morally superior to you. But that can work both ways, can't it? You know, compare myself to that person, and I'm a paragon of virtue, but if I compare myself to someone like Mother Teresa, well, suddenly I'm a a selfish, uncaring, lazy so-and-so. So who sets the standard? Well, the biblical teaching on that is very, very clear, is that God sets the standard. It's, the sta- it's his standard. It's God's standard is the benchmark against which we will all be judged in the end. And compared to him, we all fall way short. We all fall short. We're all in the same boat. Because there is something wrong with the human heart. And do you know what? I think we all know that, whether you're a Christian, not a Christian, whatever. I think we all know that, that when we look inside ourselves, when we look into our soul, we can always find some things that are not so good. I know the potential that is in me to harm others. I have harmed others. But I know the potential in me to harm others with my words, with my actions. I know that I have to battle against things like anger at times or lust at other times or other things at other times. I know the selfishness that is in me, how self-centered and self-absorbed I can be. Do you know what? I know I can make the world a better place. I can contribute to that, but I know equally I can make the world a worse place. It was G.K. Chesterton who famously responded to a question posed in the Times newspaper, what is wrong with the world? And he simply replied, dear sirs, I am. I am. So who is good or who is good enough? Because actually the biblical teaching is that we all fall short of God's standard. But that still leaves us with the rather uncomfortable idea of hell and judgment, which incidentally is only really uncomfortable in our Western culture, you understand? This is not a problem for for most other cultures in the world. In fact, what presents a far bigger problem for many other world cultures is the outrageous idea that God would forgive. What sort of a God would send bad people to heaven would be their question. And so I think it's important to understand that this does have a cultural context, uh, an important cultural context. It's important for us to be aware of that. Just because we live in a culture that has one particular view doesn't mean it's the right view, doesn't mean it's the only view. Who's to say that our cultural take on things is superior to any other culture's take on things? And Jesus was certainly in no doubt about the reality of hell. This is why it's beyond me how any Christian could try to dismiss hell as being not real. Jesus was in no doubt. You know, I think sometimes people have a bit of a cardboard cutout version of Jesus You know, I like Jesus. I like the things he taught and did. You know, he talked about peace a lot. Forgetting that Jesus could be very confrontational, and he did speak a lot about hell and judgment. And you can't have it both ways. And if Jesus said stuff about this, I think we've got to take that seriously. So I'm going to look at something that Jesus did say. It's a parable that he told. A parable is a figurative story, which is there to to, to to illustrate a point. It's not a literal version of things. It's, It's to make a point. So this is in Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus. It says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. 
The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side, basically meaning heaven. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things, but now he's comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, then they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. So you have these two characters, a rich man and a poor man. And interestingly, this is the only parable that Jesus tells in which a a character has a specific name, Lazarus. The poor man is called Lazarus. Now that's important, that's significant, because actually it makes it all the more noticeable, and I think this was absolutely deliberate on Jesus' part, it makes it all the more noticeable that the other man, the rich man, doesn't have a name. He is nameless. Now in Israel at that time, this rich man, he wouldn't have been an atheist. He would have been a believer. He would have believed in God. He would have tried to live by the law. But we see how he's ended up. He's ended up as a nameless man in hell. Now why is he there? Why is he in hell? Well, the telling line is uh, where Abraham says, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. The rich man has had his good things. He's already reached his highest goal in life. Status and wealth were his whole identity. And now they're gone. Now those things have been stripped away, as they always will be at death. Then he has nothing left. There's no him left. There's no identity left because his identity was entirely built on his status and on his wealth. You received your good things. You received what you consider to be the best, the highest goal, the the fulfillment of life. You've already had that. Now he's a nameless man in hell. Because the idea of sin actually goes a lot further than whether you're a good person or a bad person. It goes a lot further than following rules or breaking rules. Sin is actually when you build your identity on anything other than God. Proof of that is the Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees, boy, in the Bible, the religious leaders of the day, boy, did they follow rules. I mean, they they fastidiously followed the law, but Jesus said they were lost. And if you were here last week, you'll have heard it. They were called a bunch of hypocrites. They were lost. Because actually, they weren't, in following the rules, in following the law, they weren't seeking to build an identity on God or on pleasing God. It was all about themselves. They were trying to save themselves. They were trying to gain a sense that God owes us something because we're so good, because we follow the rules. Sin is when you build your identity on things other than God. When you take a good thing and turn it into an ultimate thing. When you look at anything in this life, And you say, if I have that, if I could just have that, then I would have importance and I would have value. And if I don't have that, then I have nothing. So when things like money or career, talents, looks, relationships, family, power, control, 
approval, comfort, when those sorts of things become more fundamental to your identity, more fundamental to your sense of significance, security, acceptance than the love of God, then even if you believe in the God of the Bible, you're actually worshipping something else. And that's sin. And it's like it starts a fire in your heart. It's like it starts a spiritual fire in your soul. And I, you know, I think that's what the Bible's getting at when it uses imagery of fire. It, it uses the fire imagery in this, in this parable and in a couple of other places, but it doesn't always talk about fire. I don't think that's literal fire, as in hell is going to be a very fiery place. I think it's a metaphor for actually something worse. And that is the torment. You see this rich man, he's in torment. Why? Because he's lost everything. He's lost his wealth, and that was what mattered to him. The torment that sin will ultimately bring. Because, of course, if it's not extinguished, what does fire do? Fire spreads, and it will spread, and it will spread, and it will keep on destroying and devouring and disintegrating to a greater and greater measure as time goes on. And now the Christian teaching, as it is in many religions, is that your soul lives on when your body dies. Your soul, who you really are, that, that lives on. And you know, I remember becoming very, very aware of this when I was a teenager. Uh, my grandpa died, and I, for some reason, I went in to see his body just after he died. So it's before they've managed to make him look like he's just peacefully asleep, you know? And I looked at this, and I just, it didn't even look like him. It was so crystal clear for me at that moment that this was just an empty shell. But he had gone. The person had gone somewhere else. Absolutely clear for me. The soul lives on. Just a little side note here. People got very angry um, with all the revelations that emerged about Jimmy Savile, and it's still ongoing, isn't it? People got angry because there was this feeling that he's got away with it because he's died before he can be brought to justice. He hasn't got away with anything. You've got to understand that. If the soul lives on, he has to face God's judgment, as we all do. But he will face God's judgment. Now, that's when the idea of a God who judges suddenly seems a lot less offensive to us. Because we all want justice. You know, someone, someone hurts somebody you love dearly. Boy, do you want justice for them. You want that person to be brought to justice. We all want justice, except for when it comes to ourselves. But if we do just, you know, as many people believe, if we do just cease to exist altogether when we die, just snuffed out, that's it. That's horrifically unjust because people really do get away with it. You know, the soul lives on. C.S. Lewis said this, Christianity asserts that every individual human being is going to live forever, and this must be either true or false. Now, there are a good many things which would not be worth bothering about if I were going to live only 70 years, but which I'd better bother about very seriously if I'm going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse, so gradually that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable. But it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is the precisely correct technical term for what it would be. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood, or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. I think we all get this, actually. 
I think we all understand something of this concept of hell, of torment. I, I don't make a habit of buying woman's own. But uh, I did happen to notice in the shops the other day, and just looked at the front cover because I was thinking about this. What have we got on the front cover here? We've got somebody living in fear, Linda's fear. We've got somebody living a lie, accused of being deluded and selfish. Uh, We've got crazy and bad and out of control. We've got somebody gutting a face with a fishing knife as well. A bit weird. And then there's another one here. What have we got? Judy's mercy dash. Chloe could die. Torment. This is somebody in torment, isn't it? Uh, My husband cheated as I fought for life. Jen devastated over final split with Dawn. Devastation. And this one even uses the word, Michelle's yo-yo diet, hell. Hell. It even uses the word, doesn't it? I think we all understand this. These These are people with money, with fame and all the rest, going through torment. They could say, my life, it just feels like I'm going through hell. And I think we understand the concept of torment and and going through hell um, and how that can feel like there's a fire and it's a fire that is spreading and spreading out of control and destroying and disintegrating. You know, when you're going through torment, it feels like you're falling apart. You're falling to pieces, disintegrating. And going back to what I said a bit earlier, it's one thing to love a career, that's fine. But if your whole identity is built on that, if your whole sense of worth is tied up in your career and then you lose your job, You're not just upset about that, you're devastated. It's torment. You're ruined. Your life is ruined. It's one thing to love somebody or to want to be loved, to want a relationship. But if your whole identity is built on that relationship and it goes wrong, you're not just hurt by that. You're devastated. You're ruined. You feel worthless. You're disintegrating. You're falling apart. You're falling to pieces. When we take good things, because career is good, relationships, good. But when we take good things and turn them into ultimate things, they will enslave you. And they will ultimately destroy you. Because when those things are taken away, then you're left with nothing. No identity, no name. Hell is the result of a life disconnected from God that begins now. And if it's not nipped in the bud, it will flower and it will continue to grow on that trajectory for eternity. If the fire isn't extinguished, it will spread for eternity and devour and destroy. Verse 26 in here says, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Hell is a place of separation. People often think, as I said earlier, people often think of hell as a dungeon, a torture chamber, a fiery pit, and all, and all the rest. Actually, what hell is? Hell is separation from God. It is complete separation from the presence of God. Complete separation for eternity from the presence of God. If sin is saying, leave me alone to God, which I think it is, that kind of independent spirit, I don't need you, I'm going to base my life on these things, not you, I don't need you. If sin is saying, leave me alone to God, then hell is God ultimately saying, okay. Okay, have it your way. Not with any glee, but with great hurt. I think parents know something of this. If you're a parent, I think you know that sometimes the most effective punishment or discipline for a child is to actually let them do what they want to do and actually experience the consequences. You know, you've got the ovens on and you're in the kitchen saying, stay away from the oven because it's hot and don't touch it, it will hurt you. Um, But there's that independent spirit in the child, and I think, again, parents all know about this, 
Daddy, leave me alone. I want to explore this myself. Sometimes it's good to let them experience the consequences. But of course, we don't usually do that, do we? Because if we actually let them do what they want, it will be dangerous. It could kill them. So we put constraints on. We put loving constraints on our children as parents. But then when they become an adult, then there comes a time when the parent has to let the child go. The parent has to say, now you make your own choices. The constraints are off, actually. It's over to you. In effect, the parent has to say to the child, thy will be done. You might not like it, but they have to say it. Humans spend their lives trying to be independent from God. In effect, we spend our lives trying to leap over that chasm in the story. We never make it, but we try and and leap over that chasm. People run towards hell thinking it's going to be great, thinking it's going to be fun, thinking freedom, constraints off, run away from God, because people think that independence is the same thing as freedom, and it's not. Independence is not the same thing as freedom. But you know, nobody, apart from Jesus... No one knows what it is to be completely separated from God because no one in this life is completely separated from God. Whatever you believe about God, whether you believe in God or not, I believe that God sustains you, that God sustains the world, and that he puts constraints in place in this world that we might never know about, but you will know about it when they're gone. Complete separation from God, eternal separation from God and the presence of God, that will be hell. And it won't be fun. It won't be good. It won't be freedom. C.S. Lewis says that hell is the greatest monument to human freedom, to human independence, to human free will. It's, it's God letting go. It's God saying, okay. Lewis went on to say there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done And those to whom God will, in the end, say, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. You see, the biblical picture of hell, it's not one of God throwing people down into a pit as they plead for mercy and plead to be let out. Do you know what's noticeable about the rich man? He doesn't ask to be let out. He never asks to be let out of this place. Hell is a place of complete self-deception. This rich man, he's completely out of touch with reality. He's still trying to order Lazarus around. He still thinks Lazarus is his slave. This man who's in heaven, who has a name, who has the dignity of having a name, he still thinks he's his slave. He's in utter denial about where he is, about why he's there, and about who he is. There's no asking for forgiveness here. In fact, he's strongly insinuating with what he says at the end. He's strongly insinuating this is totally unfair because God didn't give me enough information. He's utterly self-absorbed. He's shifting blame. He never asks to be let out. He just wants Lazarus in to serve him. The doors of hell are locked from the inside. Hell is a freely chosen identity based on something besides God going on and on and on forever. Do you know a very telling comment? In, I mentioned that Stephen Fry video earlier. Very telling comment that he made in that video. When he was asked by the presenter, you know, if you believed in this, do you think you'd get into heaven? And he says, I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to, not on his terms anyway, is what he says. Such is his indignation at this God he doesn't believe in. The doors of hell are locked from the inside. No one will be in hell who hasn't chosen it. Now, a very legitimate objection that people can have to hell it comes out of 
comes out of their experience. It may, this might be your experience that hell in the past has been used in your life, has been taught in your life as an instrument of fear, as a stick to beat you with to keep you in line. Do that or you go to hell. And people have strong objections about that when children are taught about hell and it's like this fear thing to come in. That's not right. That's not right. And if that has been your experience, then I'm really sorry about that. Because that's not right. Because you see, fear will not change your heart. Fear won't change anything. Fear has no power to change the fundamental structures of your heart. The fear of hell will not keep anyone out of hell. It won't put the fire out. Remember, what's the biggest problem with the world? It's self-centeredness. It's self-absorption. So if we act out of fear, if we think, right, so I'm, okay, I'm going st- to start going to church, I'm going to start trying to live a moral lifestyle, follow the rules and be good. If that's done out of a fear of hell, do you see what's happening? Do you see what that is? It's more selfishness, isn't it? It's self-centeredness because it's for your sake. It's not, about, it's not about pleasing God. It's using God as a means to an end. It's for your own self-preservation. And like the Pharisees, it's about actually gaining a sense that God owes me something. If I live, if I'm a good boy, then God has to give me good stuff. He has to give me those things that I'm actually building my identity on. Fear will not change the heart. So what does? What can change the heart? Love. Love. Radical, unconditional love. And this is where Jesus comes in. Because you see, Jesus does give us the opportunity to nip that disconnectedness with God in the bud before it becomes an eternal thing. He offers to extinguish that fire before it spreads out of control. He offers the opportunity for you to build your identity on him, something which is good and eternally good. And so that when everything else is gone... Wealth is gone, career is gone, status is gone, relationships are gone. Your fundamental identity is still intact because you haven't lost everything. You've still got the greatest prize in the universe. You've got him. Your fundamental identity is still intact. You still have a name. You still have that dignity and you have eternity with God. The thing is, if we don't understand hell, we cannot possibly understand the extent of God's love for us because Jesus took your hell on the cross. If hell is separation from God, that's exactly what happened to Jesus. Just think about separation for a minute. To lose the love of a friend, that really hurts. To lose the love of a spouse, that hurts more because the deeper the relationship, the greater the sense of agony and isolation and suffering and disintegration. You feel like you're falling apart. Well, for Jesus to be forsaken on the cross, for him to be separated from his Father, that is beyond our imagining. Such was the depth of the relationship between the Son and the Father, Jesus and his Father in heaven. It is beyond our imagining the depths of suffering, anguish, isolation, suffering that he went through, sense of disintegration, agony that Jesus went through on the cross. He took hell on the cross. He took hell. And unless you believe in hell, you'll never know how much he loves you. You'll never know how much he suffered for you, how much you cost, how much he values you. As I said earlier, people, sometimes Christians, trying to make God appear more loving by dismissing the uncomfortable things, the comfortable idea of hell and judgment, that doesn't make God more loving, it makes him less loving. Because if there's no hell, there's no cost. Somebody 
came up to you and said, look, while you were away on holiday, um, I just popped around your house and I noticed a bill had come in through the door and I paid it for you. So, and you don't need to pay me back, it's fine. Well, the key question there is, of course, how much was it? How big was that bill? You know, if it was my monthly subscription to Woman's Own, well, that's, <laughs> that's one thing. But if it's something much, much bigger, that's an, until I know how much he paid, I don't know whether to just shake his hand and say, thanks very much, or whether to fall on the ground and kiss his feet. Well, Jesus, the Bible tells us Jesus paid a bill. He paid a debt. He paid a cost that is way too big for you. In a million lifetimes, you would not be able to pay this debt off. It's when we grasp that, it's when we understand hell, that we can start to grasp just how much he loves you and what he gave, what he gave up, what he suffered, what for you, in order to have you. You know, it's why we can sing lines in songs like, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And you have the opportunity to stop running towards hell, pursuing your own independence, and to turn and run into the loving arms of Jesus, which is where you will find true freedom. I can guarantee it. You will find true freedom. You can even do that this morning if you want. Let me sum up with this. You know the story Jesus told about the prodigal son? You know that one? That you've got the father and two sons, and there's a, rip, there's, a, there's a bad boy and there's a good boy. And the bad boy, the younger son, he says to his father, he says, I don't need you, I don't want you, I want your stuff. Give me my inheritance now so I can get out of here and live the life I want to live. And he does. Gets his inheritance, he goes off, lives a wild lifestyle, ends up in not a good place. He ends up in a pigsty, eating the pig's food. He's got nothing. And he's in torment. He's in utter torment. So he thinks, I'm going to go, I'll go back to my father. Maybe I can get a job as a servant. At least there I'll have food to eat. But he gets this incredible welcome. Because the father sees him. And he, he runs to him. And he hugs him. This boy stinking of pigs. He kisses him. He puts the best robe around him. And he puts on this extravagant feast for this boy who has come back. The one who was lost, but now he's found. And this wayward son, he's in, in the feast. He's included in this amazing feast. He's part of the family. And you know, heaven is like that. Heaven is a welcome for anyone who's ever been in the pit, who's ever been in the pigsty, who's ever been in, in torment and is, and is willing to say, can you end this for me, Jesus? And Jesus says, yes, absolutely, absolutely, come in, please come in. It's a great picture of heaven, but there's also a picture of hell in this story because there's the other son, the good boy, the one who stayed and he stands on his rights and he refuses to go into that feast because he's furious. It's not fair. Not fair. I've worked for you all these years. I've slaved for you all these years. You owe me this. And you give it away so freely. This feast, you give it away. And he's fuming. And he's there by his own choice. He's outside the feast. He's outside in the darkness. And he's in torment. He's in pieces about this. He's furious. He's in torment. He's in hell. This is hell for this boy. Now, is he in hell because of his father's cruelty? No. It's because of his father's kindness. Actually, in his eyes, his father has been too kind. Is he outside because he's too bad for heaven? No, it's because he thinks he's too good for heaven. Too good to receive mercy. He thinks his father owes him, and he stands against the infinite love and mercy of this father. The father's begging him to come in. Please, son, come in. Please come in. Please come into the feast. 
because he loves both his boys. He wants them both in the feast. He doesn't want one outside. But the older brother stands against it, and it is torment for him. But it's not because the father is cruel. There is a loving God, there is a loving father, who opens up this feast, and he invites all, everybody. He invites all to come through Jesus. It doesn't matter if you've been in the pigsty, it doesn't matter what you've done. You are invited. You are invited, but he won't force you. Actually, he respects your dignity and your freedom to choose too much. He won't force you inside. He leaves the choice of whether you accept his invitation or not. He leaves that entirely up to you.